Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 12. When I left off last week, I was working through the list of kings and places in northern Canaan that united against the upstart Israelites after they crossed the Jordan River and defeated many of the places to the south. Spending the entirety of the episode on Hazor and a good bit of time on the one or possibly two kings named Jabin, who ruled the city and much of the surrounding territory. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the next king in place on the list, King Jabab of Madden, and pressing through the chapter. And with that, let's get started. The history of King Jabab of Madden is easy, as there really isn't anything known about him nor the city. This is the only place in the Bible this king is mentioned, though there is a smattering of other people who share the name. As for Madden, the city or town, it's only mentioned in Joshua, here, in chapter 11, and again in 12, as one of the places defeated by the Israelites. It was located in the territory allotted to the tribe of Zebulun. And that's it. Next in the text is an unnamed king of Shimron. It, too, is only named in Joshua, though there were a few people called the Shimronites mentioned in Numbers as descending from Jacob's son, Issachar. But given the context, that was likely someone else, which means there's really nothing else from the biblical text to cover. As for the people defeated by the Israelites in Joshua, they were from a place known as Tel Shimron, meaning on a hill, a tell. This hill rises some 200 feet, just over 80 meters above the surrounding valley, in this case, the Jezreel Valley, in the rich agricultural plain about midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. Today, this place is a small nature reserve in the northern portion of the country of Israel. In the outside record, Shimron was one of several Bronze Age fortified northern Canaanite cities that controlled the Jezreel Valley. As for Shimron itself, it may have been the largest and most powerful of these. Its position was key, overlooking the entrance to the valley, meaning it controlled the roads that led to the valley from many directions, and with that, the trade that traveled along those roads. The city merited a mention in the Egyptian Amarna letters, where it's called Shimon. This name is also found on Egyptian records known as the Exacheration Text. These are ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic texts listing enemies of the Pharaoh, which made them also enemies of the Egyptian state, or uncooperative foreign neighbors. These texts were most often written upon statuettes of enslaved or imprisoned foreigners, or on bowls, blocks of clay or stone. After they were written, they were broken up. The ceremonial process of breaking the names and burying them was intended to be a sort of sympathetic magic, a ritual, that would affect the persons or entities named on the text. The fragments were usually placed near tombs or other religious ritual sites. This practice was most common during times of conflict with the Asiatic neighbors of Egypt, 
and the practice lasted at least from the Old Kingdom through the New Kingdom, meaning it was still in use when the Israelites spent their 400 years in Egypt through the Exodus, then settlement in Canaan. As a note, the New Kingdom in Egypt was winding down around 1069 BC, which was about 40 years before Saul took the throne as the first king of a united Israel. The city of Shimron would remain occupied through the era when the Greeks were in control, with the city growing so large that parts of it would be built downhill at the base of the Tell. During the First Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD, the Jewish and Roman forces battled at the city, with the Romans laying siege to it. According to Josephus, in his recording of the history of that war, and who, according to some interpretations, was in the city at the time, claims that he was attacked there at night by a Roman decurion, which was a Roman cavalry officer. At that time, the specific officer who attacked him at the site was in charge of the Great Plain, meaning the Jezreel Valley, and had 100 horses and 200 infantrymen at his disposal. The Roman soldiers, however, were forced to withdraw since their horses were of little use in that terrain, which I found a bit unexpected, but could not find a decent explanation for. The city was also mentioned in the Babylonian Talmud, which is what is usually shortened to just the Talmud. It was compiled between the 3rd and 6th centuries AD. The town would marginally survive through the Ottoman and British Mandate eras, usually with a population hovering around 100. Finally, in 1965, it was designated by the Israeli government as a nature preserve, owing to the somewhat rare apple ring acacia trees that grow there. This place is the northernmost known grove of these trees in Israel, though the reserve itself is rather small, only 7 acres, 3 hectares. And that's it for the city of Shimron. Next up is a place known as Akeship, which was ruled in the time of Joshua by an unnamed northern Canaanite king. After the Canaanites were defeated by the Israelites, it would be located in the territory allotted to the tribe of Asher, on its eastern side. In the Old Testament, it's only mentioned in Joshua, and only in reference to the defeated Canaanites. The actual location is a matter of dispute, with no less than four different tales proposed. The outside record provides a few more clues, with the 14th century BC Armana letters naming Indaruta as the governor of Akshapa, thought to be the same as Akship. It was also noted in these letters that at the time, the Habiru were attacking city-states in the region. Recall that the name Habiru is used rather generically to refer to roving bands of marauders and could be related to the Sea Peoples. In this case, they were rampaging through Canaan, hitting Akeship and Jerusalem, among other places. In the Canaanite cities, while still under the control of the Egyptians, were attempting to come to each other's mutual aid. Another letter is much like many of the other Amarna letters I've covered in recent episodes with the governor of the city pledging his loyalty to the pharaoh. The last letter I'll touch on speaks of Egyptian archers being sent to the region 
but some apparently being stationed in the city. And that's it for Eggship. Next up are a few unidentifiable kings and places listed as the kings who are in the northern hill country and in the Erebus south of Chinnereth and in the lowland. Obviously, without names for these kings or the cities they ruled, there's really nothing here. As for the Arabah, when the name is used in an ancient context, it generally refers to nearly the entire length of the Jordan Valley, which ran from the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee south to the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba on the Red Sea, an area that also included the Dead Sea. To them, a very large region. As for Chinnereth, this is another name for the Sea of Galilee, though there was a place, a city, named Chinnereth in the area. And while that is confusing, when referring to the body of water, like in Numbers 34, it's usually prefaced by the Sea of. And the sea was named this in the period due to the prominence of the city. At this time, the prosperity of the town and region was likely due to the convergence of three things. The first was the rich soil found there. Josephus mentioned this in his writing, and given that the era was knee-deep in the agricultural revolution, this makes sense. The next factor was its proximity to the Sea of Chinnereth, Galilee, take your pick. As we're frequently reminded in the New Testament, this body of water is chock-full of fish, to the point that a fishing industry, using that word rather loosely, developed on its shores. And the last is the thing we see in most prosperous cities in that era, trade. The place thought to be it, which I'll get to in a second, was on a tell, sitting slightly above an ancient trade route, a location that had great lines of sight to the plain below. Add those together, and you get a city thriving enough that the things around it are given the same name. But that prestige wasn't to last. As other cities and places on the shore of the lake arose, the lake would be renamed after those. Places like Tiberias, Emenia, and of course Galilee, which wasn't a city, but a region, but still lent its name to the lake. And the lake wasn't the only place that borrowed the name from the city. There's also the plain of Genseray, which ran south of the ancient city. The plain's modern name is usually rendered as the plain of Genazar, at least in Hebrew. Arabic speakers know it by another name, which I'll spare you my mispronunciation of. As for that place, it's more frequently called Kinnereth with a K, which is also how it's rendered in the NIV. The New Revised Standard and the King James call it the version that starts with the letter C. While I'm on the name, it's thought to be a reference to a variety of trees that grow in the region. This tree is now called Christ's Thorn Jujib and is commonly believed to have been the source of the crown of thorns. And, as if that wasn't enough, there is a single tree of the variety in the area that could be up to 2,000 years old. And some believe this is the actual tree the thorns came from. Though the branches of this species of tree are rather brittle, 
may be too brittle to be twisted into a crown of thorns, with a different variety of jujib being offered up as an alternative. And that's enough for that rabbit hole. The city was located on the north shore of the lake that shared the very similar name. The city is only named twice in Joshua, both times referring to a geographic location. It did get a mention in 1 Kings, again as a landmark. Chinnereth is thought to be the ruined ancient city uncovered as Tel Kinrat. This place, if the ancient Chinnereth, was a fortified city that lasted from the Bronze through the Iron Age. It sits about halfway between other major cities of Capernaum and Magdala, hence the trade route. There is a mention in the outside record, and what makes it unusual is that there is only a single reference to the city, at least that I could find and that has been uncovered so far. This mention is in the 15th century BC Annals of Thutmose III and is found at the Temple of Karnak. On these, it's named as Kenartau. Back in the Old Testament, it was not listed as a place defeated and instead used in Joshua as a geographic landmark. The city and region would be allotted to the tribe of Gad. And that's the city of Chinnereth. The next and last place I'll cover in this episode is the city that the text is explicit the Israelites conquered, Napathdor. Sometimes it's known simply as Dor. The location thought to be this is a bit of a conundrum, as it's not anywhere close to where the Israelites fought the allied kings of northern Canaan. The place generally identified as Napathdor is on the coast, and not the coast of the Sea of Galilee but the Mediterranean. This is about 40 miles, 60 kilometers from the eventual battlefield, and this is a straight-line distance. Add to that the mountains, valleys, wadis, and rivers between the two places, and the marching distance increases significantly. But if it was here, it would have been about 8 miles, 13 kilometers north of the city that would become Caesarea, and just south of Carmel. Like Chinnereth, its economy benefited from its proximity to a body of water, in this case, the larger Med. And it wasn't just fish. In fact, it wasn't even primarily fish, at least not the type with scales and fins. To be honest, I'm not a zoologist, so it may even be a mistake to call it a fish. Instead, what drove the economy in Napathdor was the sea snail, a mollusk. And not for consumption, but instead for a secretion that would then be developed into a fabric dye known as Tyrian purple. And it's this dye that's the reason the color purple is commonly associated with royalty, and was sometimes even called royal blue. Yes, that color. Though, that was from a slightly different sea snail. What surprised me was this wasn't only true in the Middle East, but even as far away as Mexico. That has to be a coincidence, right? Unlike other, usually plant-based dyes of the era, this one was extremely difficult to obtain, which, since economic laws are relatively static, made it expensive. 
and that led to it being a status symbol. I've touched on this before, though a cursory search didn't lead me to the exact episode. I'm sure it'll pop up again, and I will do a deeper dive at that point in time. Just know that besides the coastal city of Tyre, from which the die gets its name, other cities like Napathdor are thought to have benefited from its production. Back in the city, it was, of course, a Canaanite city, though given its position, it would also intersect with the history of the Phoenicians, along with the Sidonians. The Dai, along with the city's position on the coast, may have been what brought the Phoenicians here, especially if you consider them one and the same as the Sea Peoples. The impact of the Sea Peoples is more plainly seen in the 12th century BC, when they suddenly appear from north of the city in Syria to well south in Egypt. This would have been in the rough time period as the Exodus, when migration throughout the region suddenly exploded. I covered this in depth in Chapter 6, Episodes 20-22. through 22. As I spoke of then, and as a quick reminder, the Egyptians drove them back, away from the African continent, and up into Canaan. Translation, they congregated on the coast in the area around Napathdor, among others. And this city was particularly useful to seafarers, as it had a naturally protected inlet. And this inlet led to a harbor, which was key to the city's fortunes. There are a few such places in this part of the eastern Mediterranean coast, with the others being at Tyre and Caesarea. Even Josephus wrote of the harbor, though he did say it was inferior to the one at Caesarea. Which gets me back to the royal purple sea snails. They weren't really native to Dor, with most being imported there. Archaeological excavations at Dor have uncovered a sort of device used to extract the dye from the mollusk using quicklime. And the remains show that the mollusk were likely not local, probably brought to Dor because it was a major port in that era. The general thought is that these sea peoples were the same people the Israelites would know as the Philistines. The sea peoples ended up settling in western Canaan, where they grew stronger. At the same time, the Egyptian empire was in a relative decline, leaving a bit of a vacuum in the region that spanned from Syria to Canaan to Sinai. Some call this geographic region the Levant, though in the past decade or so, this name has acquired its own political baggage. And of course, Napathdor was found in this region. The name itself translates to the Heights of Dor. The general thinking is that this doesn't mean the city was positioned on a tell, at least not in the usual sense. Instead, it was on the slopes of Mount Carmel. This mountain is relatively low, only 1,700 feet, just over 500 meters above sea level at its highest point. I'll get to the mountain in the near future, as it's listed as a place later in Joshua. And it's because the longer moniker is mostly descriptive that the city is frequently named simply as Dor. In fact, most of the references in the Old Testament take this form. 
To the later Greeks and Romans, it was known as Dora. Backing up a bit, after the Israelites showed up, it was in the territory assigned to the tribe of Manasseh. But the Philistines were still there. And we know they would be in conflict with the Israelites for hundreds of years. At the time, a king ruled from Dor and controlled territory that ran from the slopes of Mount Carmel to the coast. The text of Joshua shows this king, and therefore the city, was allied, at least at this time, with King Jabin of Hazor. And the king and his forces were defeated. But the text does not say the city was conquered. Confirmation of this can be found in Joshua 17, and again in Judges 1. So much for driving out all of the Canaanites. And that's door in the biblical text. The outside record provides some insight into the place. The city appears to have been founded around 2000 BC, placing it in the Middle Bronze Age and about the time of Abraham. Records, mostly meaning mentions of the city, date to the later Bronze Age, with the city being constantly inhabited through the Crusader period. During this time, it was occupied by the Canaanites, Sea Peoples, Israelites, Phoenicians, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, and Muslims. In the 12th century BC, the town appears to have been taken by the Sea Peoples and was ruled by them at least as late as the 11th century. King Solomon would make the town one of his 12 commissariat districts. What this meant was that every month, one of these cities sent supplies to the palace. None of this is out of the ordinary when placed beside other cities in the region, which gets me to something new and intriguing. Around 460 BC, the Athenians formed an alliance with the Egyptian leader Inaros to take on their mutual enemy, the Persians. In order to reach the Nile Delta and support the Egyptians, the Athenian fleet had to sail south. Athens had secure landing sites for their warships as far south as Cyprus, but needed a way station between Cyprus and Egypt, meaning they needed a naval base on the coast of Lebanon or further south, which is where the problem arose. The Phoenician cities of Sidon and Tyre were in a good spot and controlled much of the mainland coast, but they were loyal to Persia. About 50 miles, 80 kilometers south of those cities, the Athenians found an isolated and tempting target for establishing a base, and this was Dor. The Athenians seized Dor from the Sidonians, who controlled this small coastal region. I'll circle back to the Sidonians in a minute. For the Athenians, Dor was just far enough from Sidon that it could be held. And Dor had a few other things they needed. A harbor protected from both weather and surprise attacks. And a large enough economy that purchasing or seizing other supplies like food wouldn't be a problem. The port at Dor had a plentiful natural spring close to it. Uphill, the city was protected from land invasion by a marshy area and a rough natural moat. All in all, Dor checked all of the boxes. 
So Athenian forces took the city, making it their most remote outpost. As for the Sidonians, it seems that Dor spent much of its existence in the latter BC era switching hands between the Philistines, Israelites, Sidonians, and as we just saw, the Athenians. All of this likely due to the convergence of its location near the ever-moving borders between the kingdoms, along with its economic prowess, and the harbor. This was evident in the 11th century BC, when the Philistines, at the time being led by Ashkelon, fought against Sidon. The Philistines seized most of the area around Dor, trying to drive out the Sidonians, with many Sidonians fleeing north to Tyre. Later, the Assyrians led by Tiglath, Pileser III, destroyed much of the city and installed a loyal governor. Then, in 138 BC, when it was under the control of the Seleucid Greeks, specifically Diotis Tryphon, it was seized by another Seleucid, Antiochus, as part of the ongoing conflict between the various Seleucid rulers. In this instance, Diotis managed to escape, but not for long, as he would die at someone's hand a short while later. When the Romans were in control, and in this case, it was Pompey in the first century BC, Dor was part of the Roman province of Syria. Dor was also mentioned in the third century AD Mosaic of Rehob as being one of a few places exempt from paying tithes. While this seems strange, a rationale was provided. The city was not resettled by Jews when they returned from the Babylonian exile in the 4th century BC. After this, though, the city declined, to the point during the Crusades and the Middle Ages. It was hardly of note, probably owing to newer and bigger ports, along with the decline in dye production which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue pressing through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.